All right, go ahead and grab a seat. We are going to go ahead and get started. If you were not here on Easter, uh, we had a conversation in which we, we discussed the fact that our faith in, in Christ and our doubts are not mutually exclusive. That we can have both faith and at the same time still have questions about our faith. And in fact, one of the things that we talked about, and it may seem counterintuitive at first, but... But when you have questions, one of the best things we can do for our faith is not to ignore the questions or just to try to explain them away, but rather to lean in and honestly wrestle with them. Because, and I have found this to be the case in my own life, when you wrestle with your questions, it does very similarly what an exercise will do to your muscles. It strengthens it. And yes, it, it sometimes begins with breaking down and there's some pain and there's discomfort, but in the long run, when we lean in and we begin to grapple with our questions, whether it be through prayer, reading God's word, studying this, this 66 books to see if what it says is actually true and, and whether it, it stands up to scrutiny and having conversations with others who are on this journey as well. When we wrestle through those things, our faith actually gets strengthened and grows. And so over the course of this month, we are just basically going to be grappling with some of our biggest questions. Some of the questions that both people from outside the church, people who are non-believers, as well as people within the church, many of us grapple with. And this morning, I want to look at the foundation of, of our faith, the gospel message. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. And that is, if you don't own Bible, that is our gift to you. Please feel free to take it. Um, if you have already taken three or four of them, you can bring some back too, of course. But. So we are going to be grappling with the foundation of our faith, the gospel message as it's been articulated. And, and in a nutshell, that gospel declares that because God created us to do life with him, but sin got in the way. And so rather than God just saying, I'm done with you and holding us at arm's length and saying, good luck, you, you made this bed, now sleep in it. He sent his son, Jesus, God in human flesh, to walk amongst us for a season and to ultimately die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled and have relationship with our father God just as he designed us for in the beginning. That's the gospel message in a nutshell, but here's the question I really want to ask today, and I'm serious when I ask this question. Is it true? Well, before we answer that question, and we're honestly going to look at it this morning, it would probably be a pretty good idea for us to understand how the early church would have articulated the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, who was an apostle, basically he was, an apostle is just a big word for us, somebody who has been sent by God to go and represent him and to advance the, the, the gospel message into places where it hasn't reached. And one of the places that Paul preached the gospel message was in this city called Corinth. 
And it was a city that was full of paganism. It was not a Jewish city predominantly, although there were Jews there. And he began to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what he preached. And he reminds them in a letter to them here in in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel or good news that I preached to you, which you received and upon which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the words that I preach to you. Otherwise, if you, if you hold on to some other gospel, or you twist it to say something other than what I said, then you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he, and then he was raised again on the third day, again, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are living, although some have fallen asleep, which is just a, a euphemism for they've died. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, because Paul was the, the last of the apostles. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Emmaus and kind of stunned him. And, and led Paul in a very different direction. So that's the gospel message. And I, I would point out that this is perhaps the earliest Christian creed that we have documentation of. Paul wrote this letter between 20 and 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead. But as you notice, he said, hey, I just want to remind you of what I have already preached to you. So Paul was in Corinth about five years before he wrote this letter which means that it was between 15 and 20 years after Jesus supposedly rose from the dead that Paul began to teach them, listen, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. But you notice in verse 3 that he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So here is what's going on. Paul didn't make this gospel message up. This isn't his words. These are the words that he received from the disciples. And, and theologians believe that this, these are the kind of things, this is the gospel in its kernel form that was preached from the very earliest days of the Christian movement. As, as the disciples left the upper room and began to go out and share the good news in Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria, that this is the core of what they preach. And how do we know that? Well, first off, notice that he says that it was Jesus first appeared to Cephas. Now, that's a name you may not be all that familiar with, but you probably know who he's talking about. Because Cephas is the Aramaic name of a guy named Peter, who was one of the disciples. So these are the disciples' words. They're saying, hey, this is what Jesus did. This is what we've seen. This is what we've heard. Let's go tell other people. And they began to go out and preach this gospel message. And they shared it with Paul. And Paul says, now, when I came to Corinth, I shared the gospel with you as well. So what is the core of the gospel here? That Jesus was buried. I'm sorry, that Jesus was... Let's try this again, shall we? All right. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ, and Christ, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word 
for the Hebrew word Messiah, and that word means anointed one. It's a title of the one that God would send who had been anointed by his spirit to redeem God's people. So Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah or Christ, died for our sins according to the scriptures. Here he's pointing to scriptures like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. We looked at a lot of these different uh, scriptures over Good Friday. If you weren't here, we have one of the CDs out there and you can listen to it. There's a ton of Old Testament scriptures that pointed to the fact that Jesus would die for us or the Messiah would. That he was, he was killed or died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and then he was raised on the third day again according to the scriptures. And there are passages both in the Old Testament that pointed to the fact that the Messiah, though he might taste death, he, God would not allow his body to see decay. But Jesus also prophesied himself that just as Jonah had been in the belly of a fish for three days, he also would. And they could tear down this temple, but I will build it back up or raise it back up in three days. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus was pointing to this. And he says, so this is the gospel message, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, and then a whole bunch of people saw him. All right? So now that we know what the gospel message is, I ask again, is it true? Because we may, by faith, say, yeah, it's true. But apart from our faith, it seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? And in fact, this is perhaps one of the single most contentious points of the gospel message. That Jesus would actually raise again from the dead. We might accept the fact that he was so convinced in his mind that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, God's son, that he would be willing to die for that. But the real kicker here is the suggestion that he would rise after three days just as he said would happen. And in fact, this week I was reading a, um, a letter that was written from a father who is not a believer to his believing son, explaining to him why he didn't believe. And let's, let's take a look at what he said. He says, the fundamental problem that I have with the whole Christian business is this. Every dead person I've ever known has stayed dead. But Christians say that Jesus rose from the dead. Keep going. You're asking me to overturn all this evidence that I and everyone else who has ever lived have that people stay dead because of the general reliability of some ancient documents that I don't even know very much about? You asked me who I thought Jesus was. It's a question that I frankly don't have a definitive answer for, but one thing I am quite certain of. Whoever Jesus was, he isn't that now. He's dead. It's not just people today who struggle with the idea that dead people stay dead. And yet the entire, our entire faith kind of hinges off of the belief that Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ, actually rose from the dead. And there were people, even in Paul's day, who were suggesting that, no, well, they, they were suggesting that, you know what, we don't believe theologically that anybody rises from the dead. We believe that when you die, you die, and that's it. And so Paul, in response to that, addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15. He does not share the gospel message here 
simply to remind them of what he said. He shares it because he is about to embark on a conversation with them about a piece of their theology that is absolutely undermining the gospel message. So he says, let me remind you of what you've heard. But this is working theology here. He's, he's addressing a specific issue. And the issue is, I don't believe that dead people rise from the dead. I don't believe that there's an afterlife. To which Paul says, okay, you want to play that game? Let's go ahead and, and think through the ramifications of that. Let's keep going in 1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead and jump down to verse 13. Paul says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of them are suggesting, then not even Jesus Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about him that he raised Jesus from the dead. But if he didn't raise him, and, and if in fact the dead... Sorry, we'll try that again. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, those who died went to the grave believing that Jesus was somehow the way, the truth, and the life, they are lost and he concludes with these very encouraging words. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. Do you think that Paul sees this as a big issue? Theologically, right? Let's, let's think about this for just a second. Reason with me, he says to them. If, as you suggest, the dead don't rise from the dead, and there is no afterlife, then that means that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead either. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, as we have suggested in the gospel message, then not only is our preaching useless, but your faith is. It doesn't matter how much faith you put in Jesus, you're still in your sins because he obviously didn't pay for them on the cross. That Easter morning, that empty tomb, that was the, the proof that he was who he claimed to be and that he did what he came to do. And if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, then honestly, we, we should, we of all people in the world, are the most deserving of compassion and pity. Because we basically put our faith in a sinking ship that has absolutely no ability to keep us above water. In fact, we've strapped in and we're going down with the ship. He goes on in this conversation to explain that, you know what, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then what's the point of all of the persecution that we've been enduring? What's the point of, of continuing to sacrifice day after day and when people begin to throw rocks, when people begin to curse my name because I'm willing to stand up and say that I believe that a carpenter from Galilee was actually the Messiah and that he's alive? What's the point of that? If the dead aren't raised, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we might as well live as the Epicureans suggest. And the Epicureans were a group of philosophers who basically said, let's suck the marrow out of life because you only live once. YOLO, baby. 
right? And so they were suggesting that you should eat and drink today because tomorrow we will die. And Paul says, if Jesus didn't get raised from the dead, then we might as well live like the Epicureans suggest because our faith is useless. It's kind of a big deal, isn't it? In reality, when you look at it, if the gospel message is the, the kind of the foundation of our faith, and Jesus is the door that gives us access to the Father God, then the resurrection is the hinge that holds that, the whole door up. And if that hinge is true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we have access to the Father. But if, as Paul is suggesting here, or as, as some of the people are suggesting, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Paul is basically saying that hinge is broken. It has no ability to open that door. That door leads nowhere, and your faith is useless. So if we're going to ask the question, is the gospel true? It really boils down to a more foundational question. Did Jesus actually raise from the dead? And that's the question I want to explore this morning. So did Jesus rise from the dead? And I, I will admit that I, my inclination to say, well, yeah, of course he did. And many of us in here would say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead because we built our entire spiritual worldview off of that assumption. But here's my question to you if you're tempted to say yes without much thought. Upon what do you found that claim upon? Is it simply blind faith? Or is there something more that you base your statement of, of agreement upon? Okay, yeah, yeah, come on. That was more of a rhetorical question, but I appreciate, Cheryl, hey, I appreciate that you are ahead of the game here because you're absolutely right. There, there is evidence, and in fact, there was a, a theologian, a guy named George Ladd, who is, was, and before his death, a, um, a, a New Testament scholar and teacher up at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. And this is what he wrote about our Christian faith. Can we throw that quote up there? He says, to some people, this is, a, it, uh, I think that we missed the first part of it. Can you, can you back up one? There we go. Nope, that's not it. How about I read it? Okay, I've got it here too. He says this, Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events in history. Now to some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproven, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique. Because unlike other world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. In other words, we don't have to rely solely upon Scripture or solely upon blind faith as the foundation for our faith in the resurrection, we can actually look to historical evidence. We can use the same tools that historians look at to determine whether things that happened before our lifetime happened in other areas of life. We can bring that to bear upon our faith as well. And when we do that, what we find is that it holds up very, very well to historical scrutiny. So now there are a ton of books that have been written on this. And there's 
a tremendous wealth of evidence, and I can only scratch the surface this morning. I'm going to look at four distinct pieces of evidence that support the fact that the tomb was, in fact, empty and that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay? So the piece of evidence that we're going to look at, number one, is this. If you're keeping along, we're on the back of the, the, the bulletin now. Little piece of evidence number one is all of the embarrassing um, and compromising details that are a part of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. For instance, in the day and age that, the, the, that Jesus was walking amongst the people in Jerusalem, from a cultural standpoint, women were considered in that day and age second-class citizens. In fact, in a court of law, a woman's testimony was not admissible. That is simply a cultural fact. And yet, it is women who were the first ones to see the empty tomb. Women who were the first one to hear the gospel message on the lips of angels who said, he's not here, he is risen. It is a woman who is the first to see the risen Jesus in the flesh. And it is women who were the first to articulate the good news to the disciples. Now, if you were going to make up a story that would speak to your cultural kind of society, you would probably not choose people that in that day and age were not allowed to, you know, their word was not trusted. You wouldn't do that. Instead, you would put the, the words of the gospel on the lips of men, but they didn't. All four of the gospels articulate it was women who saw Jesus. It was women who shared the gospel for the very first time. But that's not the only embarrassing or compromising evidence that we have. Because as you go through each of those gospels, you realize that even when the women shared it with the disciples, they balked. In fact, I love, I love this in um, Luke chapter 24. When the women came back and said, we have seen the empty tomb. We've talked to the angels. Jesus is alive. This is how, whoa, hi there. This is how the, the disciples responded. Luke 24, 11. The disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And we call Thomas doubting, right? So you've got the disciples who don't even believe the women who are sharing the good news with them when they first hear it. And then you get into like John's gospel is a great example of there's a ton of details that that don't really matter that he's included in that. The women came and share with the disciples. We've seen the empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. Peter and John supposedly get in a foot race to the tomb. And literally, John says, we were racing to get there. And in case you wondered, John says, I got there first. But I didn't go in. And then Peter, he's slower. He caught up. And Peter just barged right into the empty tomb, and he goes and looks, and there is the grave clothes, and it looks like a chrysalis, a, a, the, the cocoon of a butterfly that is just kind of folded in on itself. The body's not there. However, the, 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 the head wrapping was kind of folded up over to the side. Now, why does this matter? Historians talk about when they're looking at uh, statements that are supposedly historical, they're looking for details that really have no bearing on the actual situation. 
because those, those little unnecessary details that are included in the story, details like the fact that they got in a foot race, details like where the, the wrappings were folded up and what they look like, are not central to the actual story, and yet they're included. And if you're making a story up, you're not going to include details that are embarrassing to you. And even in John's gospel, as he is explaining what he and Peter saw when he was there, this is what we read in John chapter 20, verse 9. He says, even after they saw the empty tomb and they heard from the women that the, what the angels had said, John confesses that they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the first piece of evidence is this. In the gospel accounts of the resurrection, you have little details that are either A, unnecessary, B, embarrassing to the very people who are telling those accounts, or C, they're utterly compromising to the, your ability to persuade your audience that this is actually true. And if you were making it up, you would certainly not include some of these details. So that is a very quick overview of piece of evidence number one. Piece of evidence number two that we have is that we don't actually have to take simply the Bible's or the, the, the gospel writer's account of what happened, that the tomb was actually empty, because we have a ton of extra biblical evidence that the tomb was in fact empty. Let me, let me ask you this. The disciples begun, begin to go out of the upper room and share the good news in the streets of the city. What city was that that they were sharing the good news in? Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had supposedly just died, what, 50 days before? So if, in fact, the tomb was not empty, if, in fact, as some have claimed, because there are people, lots of people who have tried to undermine the gospel message and said, the tomb wasn't empty, it's just that the disciples didn't have MapQuest, and they took a wrong turn, and they went to the wrong tomb. I kid you not. This is one of the explanations that some critics have suggested. To which we say, well, if that's the case, there's plenty of people in Jerusalem who would have been very quick to point out, ah, uh -uh, here's the body. He's still dead. I love, I love this quote from uh, theologian Paul Althus. He, he states, that the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Because if the body is still in the tomb, then all you have to do is produce the body and you've completely undermined the entire gospel message. Now, there's also... The fact that we, if you read uh, Matthew chapter 24 and other places, you, you begin to see that the Jews were very vocal. They didn't claim that the tomb wasn't empty. They admitted that the tomb was empty. But they went so far as to say, yeah, the tomb is empty because the disciples came and stole the body. That's why it's empty. Because the disciples somehow overpowered a couple of Roman centurions whose lives, by the way, depend on keeping that tomb closed broke a Roman seal, pushed this massive stone out of the way, and stole the body. And that's why it's empty. Later on, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, would say, yes, the tomb was in fact empty. And this is what uh, historians refu refer to as evidence from a hostile witness. 
and it's the strongest evidence you can find. It would be like having a politician say of his or her um, competitor, yeah, well, they did that, and it was, it was a good choice. Like, if, if, if a politician or one of your kids says of a, another politician or one of his brothers or sisters something positive when they're in the middle of a fight, you can pretty much take that to the bank, right? And that's what they're saying here. It's not just the disciples who were claiming the tomb was empty. There were a ton of extra-biblical sources, many of whom had it in their best interest to deny the fact that it was empty, who were all claiming, yes, the tomb was empty. So we have it on good authority. The tomb was, in fact, empty. But, of course, this does not do away with the question of, well, what happened to the body? Because there's another, God bless you, there's another explanation we can give that they simply stole the body. That's what some of the Jewish uh, leaders were suggesting. So what evidence do we have that Jesus actually rose from the dead and his body wasn't just stolen? This brings us to piece of evidence number three. And that is the fact that there are so many eyewitnesses who claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. If Stay in your Bibles. Hopefully you're still there in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back to the gospel message as Paul preached it. We're going to begin in verse 3. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then, and then, here's where we get to the eyewitnesses that Paul is, is articulating. Then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Oh, they were hallucinating. 500 people at the same time? Okay. Then, oh, um, some, uh, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, and then to the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me. So he articulates hundreds of people who he claims have seen Jesus in the flesh. And, and by the way, it, you, you might make that argument, but you would make sure to do so after all of those eyewitnesses had died off or were now no longer accessible so that you couldn't go and corroborate it. But Paul doesn't do that. He does just the opposite. He appeared to these people. They've all seen it. And by the way, most of them are still living. You can go and ask them yourself. Some of them have died, but the vast majority are still alive. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, go ask them. Oh, but Eric, these are all people who had a reason to lie. It was in their best interest to try to keep this, this myth alive about Jesus. So we can't take their word because they were all believers to begin with. Really? Paul wasn't. When Jesus supposedly re resurrected from the grave, Paul wasn't known in the Jewish circles as Paul. He was known as Saul from Tarsus. And Saul was a, uh, a Pharisee who loved Jesus tremendously, I'm sorry, loved God, but felt that Jesus was a false Messiah. And Saul made it a point to stamp out the gospel message wherever he heard it. In fact, it was Saul who presided over the stoning, the killing, the murder of the first Christian martyr. 
He gave his approval, his blessing to it. And after that happens, he goes to the Jewish leaders and says, hey, can I get a letter from you basically giving me permission to go to all the other cities and anywhere I find these followers of the way, these little Christs, as they're called, can I arrest them? Absolutely. They give that, they give that letter to Paul and he heads off. And it's not until on the way to the next town, the spirit of Jesus appears to Paul, blinds him, knocks him off his horse, that everything changes. And yet everything changes because Saul goes from the most outspoken critic of the gospel message to Paul, the most outspoken proponent for it. He wrote over half the New Testament. And this is a guy who was dead set on eradicating the gospel message as the early believers were preaching it. But he's not the only one. There's another guy in this list that he gives us that was absolutely not convinced during Jesus' life that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that's Jesus' half-brother, James. Because during Jesus' life, James and even his mom were a little bit confused about what Jesus was doing. And at one point, as Jesus is teaching in someone's home, James and his mom show up to take Jesus home because they think that he's a little bit um, off his meds. We need to bring him home. He's saying some really strange things that he's claiming some things that are pretty dangerous. Quite honestly, we just need to take him home and put him to bed. And yet, I mean, all the way up to Jesus' death, crucifixion, James is not a believer. He is not a disciple of Jesus. It's only after he sees his brother risen from the dead that he goes from being somebody who's a skeptic to somebody who was so utterly convinced that James became one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. He became known as the old camel knees because of the amount of time he spent on his knees in prayer, lifting up the people of God. So we see a radical transformation take place in at least two individuals who were not believers prior to Jesus' resurrection. And by the way, when Jesus was in the tomb for those, third day, for those three days, there were no believers in Jesus at that point. All of, the, all of the disciples' faith had been killed, crucified on that cross alongside of him. All of them had given up hope. All of them were reeling from their expectations that had been utterly dashed. Which leads us now to our fourth and what I would consider to be strongest bit of evidence that not only was the tomb empty, but that Jesus walked out of that tomb. And that piece of evidence is the transformed lives of the men and women who followed Jesus, the transformed lives of the disciples. Because you remember what they did after Jesus had been arrested and after he had been beaten and after he'd been hung on a cross, what did they do? They hid. They didn't stick around and go, that's my, that's my rabbi. I'm going to die with him. Even Thomas, who said he would be willing, well, let's go to Jerusalem and die alongside him. All of them scattered. Even Peter, the rock, denies Jesus, not once, but three times. Because he doesn't want the same fate to befall him that's going to happen to Jesus. He's like, I don't know the guy. Nope, I, I, I'm not one of those followers of that guy. I have no idea who he is. I've never met the guy. Three times he denies knowing him. 
And after Jesus is killed, all of them hide in an upper room for fear that the same fate that, befall, that has just befallen their rabbi would happen to them. So how do we explain a group full of discouraged cowards suddenly one day leaving that upper room, coursing down into the very streets that are full of people who have been clamoring that they crucify Jesus, now going out and saying not only that he really was the Messiah, but that he's alive. We've seen him with our own eyes. Oh, and by the way, some of you will be saying, well, yeah, they're trying, they're trying to build their own religion. They're trying to basically pick up the pieces. It took them that long to come up with a story and get on the same page. Really? So you think that maybe perhaps they did this for their own benefit, as some people have suggested. Well, what benefit did it actually serve them? Because of their willingness to claim that Jesus rose from the dead and he was who he claimed to be, they endured persecution. They were kicked out of their towns. They were kicked out of their synagogues. They had to leave their homes. They were beaten, in some cases stoned, and in, in most cases, actually, they ultimately lost their lives for the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and he had risen from the dead. I don't know about you, and I may have said a white lie or two in my lifetime. My kids aren't here, so I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> but I'm the last person who would ever die for something that I know to be a lie. And yet, of Jesus' disciples, only one of them, only one of the original twelve, died of natural causes. All of the rest gave their life for the claim that Jesus was who he claimed to be and did what he claimed to do. And that one that survived, James, I'm sorry, John, thank you. He was beaten and ultimately kicked out and, and he ended up spending the rest of his life on the island of Patmos because he would not shut up about the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now you tell me, what is the most convincing proof to you? I would suggest that it's the transformed lives of men and women who at one point had been so terrified that they might somehow be linked with this crucified carpenter who turned around and became some of the most sold-out, zealous followers of the risen Lord that they were willing to die for their faith. They were willing to die for the gospel message. And that, to me, is the strongest piece of evidence that Jesus, not only the tomb was empty, but Jesus actually walked out of it. They saw him with their own eyes, and they were willing to follow him, not only through life, but into death. They were willing to endure persecution, stoning. And in some cases, Peter, remember the guy who denied Jesus three times? Ultimately, we're told that he was crucified, just like Jesus, except he didn't feel that he was worthy to be killed the same way as Jesus, so he asked that they crucify him upside down, which doesn't sound nearly, as, neither of those sound comfortable. But that is the length to which these men and women went because they were convinced that it was true. And if they were that convinced that they would put their life on it, then it gives me a lot of confidence putting my faith on it. Now, at the end of the day, 
my belief that Jesus rose from the dead is still founded upon faith because I haven't seen Jesus with my own eyes in the flesh yet. So there is still an element of faith, but this is not blind faith. This is faith that has been augmented by tons and tons of historical evidence that corroborates it. And by the way, we've only scratched the surface. There's plenty more evidence for this. If you want to dive a little bit deeper into this, one really good book is um, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. We give out The Case for Faith up front, which deals with some other questions of faith. And if you're a guest here this morning, please take a copy of that. But The Case for Christ is another great book to kind of wrestle through that. Another one um, that I've really been enjoying lately and I've been reading again is Letters from a Skeptic. That's where I got that quote at the beginning from a father writing to his son saying, I don't believe for these reasons. And so those are two great books that you can check out. So I would suggest that the preponderance of evidence is actually on the side of Jesus rising from the dead just as the, as the disciples claimed he did. Which then brings us now to another question. Okay, Paul has already made the point that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? What's the point of suffering for our faith? What's the point of sacrificing for our faith? But the question we now have before us is if he really did raise from, rise from the dead, how now shall we live? Paul addresses that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, thankfully. And so if you want to turn there to the end, the second half of this chapter, remember, it's working theology. So he's in the process of explaining. You guys are saying that the dead don't rise from the dead? Yeah. Um, but if that's the case, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead and all these kind of stuff. He then goes into a conversation about here is what our, that resurrection is going to look like. At some point, our bodies that like fruit ultimately perishes. And you guys all feel the effects of this, right? Our bodies breaking down. I don't know if it's the weather or something, but I've been having like the pain in my elbow. I'm going to have like four of you come up and say, doTERRA oils. <laughs> I know I'm already married to one, okay? I get it. But, you know, so I'm, I'm starting to feel the effects. And I know that we have people in our community right now who are feeling even greater effects, whether it be lungs that are no longer working the way that they should, or eyesight that is failing you, or cancer that is eating you away like dry rot from the inside. You feel the effects of our broken, fallen world. And he says, one day the perishable bodies that we now reside in will be replaced with imperishable ones that will not break down, that will not suffer sickness and disease and depression and anxiety. One day, our mortality, we've just had two memorial services for wonderful parts of people in our church. And one day, our mortality will be swallowed up in immortality. Because unless Jesus comes back soon, all of us are going to follow suit and all of us will taste death. But this is how Paul ends this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's begin in verse 54. He says when, and now he is basing this off of his conclusion that we have concluded that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead and the gospel message is true because that hinge is historically uh, secure. So when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, 
then the saying that is written will come true. It hasn't come true yet, but it will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. It's kind of like D-Day and V-Day. The day that D-Day, the day that we, uh, the, the, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, historians say that was the beginning of the end. At that point, World War II was all but over. It was just a matter of kind of rolling up the German defenses and, and continuing to take the land. However, those months between D-Day and V-Day, when the Allies ultimately declared victory over the Nazi party, those were some of the bloodiest, most hard-fought months of World War II. And in the same way, we live in the in-between. In between D-Day and V-Day when Christ will return and we will spend the rest of eternity in proximity to doing life with our risen Savior and our Father God, just as we were designed to do in the garden. So when that happens, on that day, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law that points out what, what screw-ups we really all are. But thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of that is a declaration of the hope that we have in him. And then he comes to this conclusion. Remember, if Jesus hasn't been raised, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if Jesus has been raised, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that, you labor in the, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then all of your hope is totally in vain. It is ill-founded upon a shifting sand, upon a ship that is already capsizing and going under. But if Jesus has been raised, then regardless of what you encounter in this life, regardless of what you walk through, regardless of the cost of saying yes to Jesus, it is worth it. So don't be discouraged when your heart is broken. And when somebody that you love begins to push you to arm's length, and says, I want a divorce. Lean in and pray for that person. Don't be discouraged when your body starts to break down. Your hope is not founded upon the doctor's ability to stave off your mortality. Your hope is found in Christ and the fact that regardless of what happens, the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of your body doesn't get the last word. When you encounter persecution, don't give up. Don't grow discouraged. Because even Jesus was persecuted. Even the early church was persecuted. You've heard me say this a hundred times. This is probably my favorite quote of Jesus. He tells his disciples on the night that he was arrested, listen guys, in this world you will, not you might, you will have trouble. But you can take heart that I have overcome the world. And this is how he overcame the brokenness of this world. He took the penalty of our sins upon himself. He took our sins to the grave. 
so that we wouldn't have to taste the penalty of our sins. Instead, we could be reunited with our Father. We could have eternal life. We could have hope. And so this morning, the invitation is A, to answer the question for yourself, what do you believe about the empty tomb? You've heard the evidence, at least some of it. What is your conclusion? And based off of that conclusion, how now will you live? I'm just going to leave you with that. Father God, I thank you so much for loving us so much that even though we were dead set in our sins, dead set on doing our own thing and living for ourselves, you sent Jesus to die for us. And I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your love. And I thank you, Father God, <laughs> for the evidence that we have that Jesus was who he claimed to be and he did what he claimed to do. Would you speak truth into our hearts? Would you help make sense of some of our deep questions? Would you shore up the foundation of our faith so that regardless of what we face, we will not grow weary or lose heart, but rather we will stand firm knowing that you are the bedrock of our faith. Jesus, you are worth following, not only in this life, but into eternity, because you're the only one who has proven that you can overcome death. You are the only one in which we can find hope. And we celebrate you now. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.